Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about time about. for Mortgage Matters. All right, good morning, everybody. Thank you very much for keeping your radio dialed in here. All the Motor Mouse listeners hanging around, appreciate you. And uh, what a great show. I, I enjoyed my trip into the radio show so much more now as I can listen to Motors, Motor Mouse on the way. I keep wanting to, uh, I'm thinking of questions I can call and ask. But I never, I never come up with any. You don't need anything fixed on your car. I don't There's know. always something that that thing's in the shop for. <laughs> Thought we were talking about that last week. That's not entirely true. <laughs> I was gonna. I I thought about calling in today though on the K and N air filter talk. I have a K and N air filter. You have the drop in air filter though, oh. not the full intake. I did. Uh, I've done those on my cars before, and I can tell you that they. Um, if that one guy with the truck is still listening, it does absolutely nothing. <laughs> it makes your truck sound a little bit truckier, but there's no improvement in horsepower or fuel efficiency. I assure you, <laughs> it's just. I think it's just a mod that you can do for fun. But you could have called in and lent, I could have called in and shared comment. that. Yeah. Well, in the last time I put one of those in, I put like the expensive one in, like with the sensors, and it was like the whole throttle body with the the filter, and it was hundreds of dollars and did nothing. It sounded cool, but it did nothing. So, yeah, yeah. those guys are those guys are right though. When you talk to mechanics about any kind of thing like that, jacking with it the way that it is is just usually a bad idea. Leave it, leave it stock. It's how the engineers planned it. It's good advice. You know what's cool though? If you have an aftermarket air filter and you go to Jiffy Lube, they don't quit don't. bugging you about changing your air filter. All right, you want <laughs> so, Yeah, you're right about that. You know what the good tip is there? Isn't that that's a thing? When you go for an oil change, usually the upsell starts. You know, your wiper blades are too dry. Your air filter's dirty. They found some other filter. There's all these things, and you just—I feel like they come into the lobby with the, the laundry list, and it's like, uh, I don't want to do all that. <laughs> Every time you guys are trying to do all that, but yeah, if you have a K and N sticker on your airbox, then they just leave it. They don't even come They're in like, and talk to you. You should you should look at that. Yeah, <laughs> those, we don't do those. Yeah, nothing about the fine people over there, Jiffy Lube, but maybe that's when you really need to know what your air filter looks like. I'm yeah. Sure that well, that that's the right air filter. And you know, honestly, I think a lot of the times if those air filters do need to be replaced, the thing for me is like uh you can grab one over at Napa for 11 bucks, but Jiffy Lube always like for me it's always like double the price. So, and they're easy. It's a clip. You don't even need a tool. It's like a clip on each side of the box and a, Yeah. Um I don't mean to bash Jiffy Lube. I know it's a locally owned business, and they do they do do a very good job. Um, 
I've utilized your services a lot. I just don't like the pressure of the air filter upsell. I don't like the pressure of any upsell. <laughs> so I'm always frustrated with that. But hey, you know, it's not just them. I think it's everybody. And to be fair, oftentimes the people probably really need a new air filter. Driving in today reminded me that I don't think I've looked at my air filter in a long time. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look at that. I'm going to go see what we're working with, see how dirty it is. I just, uh, by the way, um, the weather got a little bit cooler in the last couple weeks, and so um, that's a good reminder to everybody to go check the uh, intake filter on your heating system at your house. Um, I replace mine a few times a year, and uh, when I went and got it out last week his wifey started turning on the heater again i found the air filter was unbelievably dirty and i it just shocked me how dirty it was we have a clean house i mean we do have a dog but it was so dirty um so if you're running your heater we're heading into heater season it's a real good idea to go make sure that your heater filter is clean those two are pretty inexpensive i think i got they had a cheap one, you know, for like five bucks. Then they have a a better one for like ten bucks. And then the hypoallergenic, I don't even know if it does what it is supposed to do for fifteen bucks, but a pretty cheap fix and um, cutting down on that uh, resistance that you're getting for air into the actual furnace and blower itself. You're gonna want to you're gonna want to keep your air filter clean in there so that you're uh, not taxing that system harder than you need to. Uh, also, gonna save some money on the utility bill from not making it work harder than it's supposed to. See that? Tied it right back into the house. You know what else I did at the house this week that you might like? I put in a, a new thermostat because I was convinced that my thermostat was not right. Did you get one of those fancy ones that you? Can- you can control it with your phone. And- yep. Uh, yeah, I, and I did quite a bit of research about it. The one, the round right. one called the Nest yeah. that just has a little digital display had a lot of pretty rough reviews. Um, I went on some of the tradesmen website about, you know, kind of forums discussing the new um, the new thermostats and whether or not they're worth it. And the Nest one, I found the technician. So just like the mechanics in here this morning were saying, you know, you're not going to find a shop that would endorse you doing that. Um, A lot of the uh, industry service technicians on those said that um, the Nest ones were problematic. So I didn't buy the Nest one. I actually just bought a Honeywell one and it was like $90. So it wasn't crazy expensive. But um, it does. It connects to the Wi-Fi in the house, and you can adjust your heating and air conditioning from anywhere in the world. Just click the app on your phone. In fact, I can, if I was so inclined, I can hit the button right now and turn the heater up at my house. Um, There's no point to doing that. But the one thing, there's a few things about it that I really like as far as the... um, you ever leave your house and not remember if you turned the heater down or if you kicked it into override or something, whatever. So now you can make sure you're not wasting energy at your house. Um, and then also the other thing I think is like if you're if you come home late, you don't want to have your heater on or your schedule is erratic. So you don't want to run the heater or the air conditioning too much. You could do it like when right before you leave the office to head home. 
may check in on the climate of your house and get it ready. Huh? Wow. You look unimpressed. <laughs> I just think it's uh, unnecessary. It might it might be a little unnecessary, but the uh, interface to set all the scheduling is pretty cool when you can turn it off and on. And um, yeah, it's it's in the vein of laziness too. I mean, my thermostat has a little thing where you can just like program the temperature for different times of the day. But what so if I you do that. what if you program it to say seventy though, you know, sixty eight or whatever for like a Saturday morning because you know you're going to be there, and then it turns out that you're out of town and you didn't reprogram your whole thermostat and now you're heating an empty house. When I leave town, I just turn it off. You just flip it right off. Yeah, so that it's not running at all. Then what if it, fr- what if it freezes? <laughs> then no one's there to be too cold and worry about it. What do you think about that app that they promote on TV a lot where, oh, yeah, so-and-so left and left the water running, left the TV running, yeah. left the I've just, power. I've never seen that happen in real life. Yeah, it's just like. But, and I've seen I mean, a light left on, but come on, the water running? The garage door was left open. You know, you can go in and check and make all this stuff in your house. So, I mean, would that be a good yeah. app maybe to have then to say, oh, yeah, I forgot to turn off the heater. And I, I mean, if that's a problem for you, then I, I think, yeah, it's a great, useful piece wow. of technology. But yeah. I just remember to turn stuff off. Well, yeah, and usually when I back out of the garage, I remember to close the garage door. But anyway. <laughs> You it's a good practice. So but, it's just... but I'll tell you what though. I mean, if in the vein of whether or not the thermostat that I've installed at my house has some value that um yours doesn't, I'll say for real, the standing in front of my thermostat and pushing to Monday and what time do I want it to come on and you know, what temperature or whatever versus um using it on the interface of the phone where it's just you push the day and slide the dials kind of thing. Um, And I noticed that right away, I know it's going to save us some money because we did have ours set at the kind of the, the minimum temperatures and stuff like that, but it was set for the same time every day. And I was able to like lump Monday through Thursday together, have the thing come on at 645 if if the temperature was below the the 66 degrees or whatever that we wanted. Then on Friday, we get up a little bit earlier, so I moved it forward on Friday. Saturday, we get up an hour later, so I move it up, you know, back an hour for Saturday. And then Sunday, even an hour later, that's like the one day that we actually hopefully try to stay in bed till about 8 o'clock. Um, but just the ability to fine tune that and then be able to, to correct it at any time with the ease of a smartphone. I can tell that you're really happy about this purchase and I'm, I'm happy for you because I've been in an office with you. I know how much you like to fiddle with that darn thermostat. Yeah. Constantly messing with the temperature. He's, I mean, it's, it's an obsession. Is it the hot or cold side? Usually he's it's making both. it uh, very cold in the office. No, no, no. <laughs> There's an ideal climate where employees are most productive. Yeah, that's what James, Jason's thinking about your bottom line here. You want it a little brisk? Man, a yeah, toasty office is going to make you feel comfortable and sleepy. If it's a little brisk, then you're like, whoo, this is, yeah, let's get her get going here we got some things to do he likes our employees to make the survival decision that movement <laughs> is the only way to survive the climate That's yeah what's not... up with the studio by the way usually it's colder 
than you. It's cold in here, and today it's hot. Yeah, Dan, the problem at the office is that the building we share in the remodel, they moved one of the vents from the attorney's office goes into my office. And so their thermostat, they have an overheating lawyer, and they can't cool this guy off. So they... To put the thermostat on like frozen, and then the and that thermostat is in their office, but the the vent that blows his air was maldirected into my office, so I can't control that. I get blamed for a lot of that cold air. <laughs> However, I'll be the first to say that on a normal day, in the you know summertime or whatever, when it when it finds its way to seventy four degrees inside the office, that's too warm. Seventy one, seventy two is the the zone at which I see the employees being most productive. <laughs> yeah, temperature matters. Don't giggle. It does. Anyway. Did a thermostat. It was inexpensive. That Nest one was 250 bucks, and I got the Honeywell one that it seems to accomplish the exact same thing for like 90 bucks. Installed it pretty quickly. And there are actually rebates um, available. I tried to find um, for us here locally, because I read online that if you upgrade to a smart thermostat because they're highly programmable and you can intervene from off-site if you recognize that your heater or air conditioner is running when no one's home, um, those things make them more energy efficient and therefore there are some rebates available. Um, and so I would suggest that that means the general context of those things is that they are good for energy efficiency if it helps you better regulate your usage agreed yeah you should get one <laughs> maybe i'll look into it look at all the fancy upgrades you have at your house yet you you can't even talk to your thermostat right now I know. you and your thermostat are on an island of broken communication <laughs> and you're jealous now that i'm i can talk to my thermostat but you know right what now. i bet you i know exactly what the temperature is in the house right now what is it 68 degrees can you be positive i'm 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 very confident with that figure let me tell you what mine is. Hang on. <laughs> Ooh, look at mine. mine. 70 on the dot. No, no, 70. Um, oh, yeah, but my set point is at 68. So my house has already got... Sounds like it's not working. No, it's good. The house is already warmed up beyond the thermostat. So the uh, system's off and it's on hold until 6 p.m. Hmm. That's great, isn't it? That is. That's really nice to know <laughs> is, what's going is on. Is yours on hold until six? Do you have that level of relationship Mine's with your thermostat? Mine's just going to continue to try to hold it at sixty-eight. All right, this show already <laughs> this show already feels like a reach. I mean, these things are related to the house, but as you can see, you getting a glimpse into this. Sometimes Dan's hard to convince <laughs> when you've got superior stuff to him. <laughs> such an intelligent thermostat i mean it sounds nice doesn't it learn your habits and things like that no that other one does oh, yeah but um yeah i want doesn't I want, another guy in our office have the nest who anthony doesn't he no he's got still the old like two wire one. Oh, that's what i have we're trying to yeah. figure out how to you know install and upgrade that 
I know where he can get a nice one now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) True, true. I know how to install it, too. You'd have been proud of me. I hooked the whole thing up, but the old ones use less wires because they have batteries in them. They're Mm -hmm. not constantly hooked to a power source. So I hooked it up and was careful to follow the diagrams and everything perfectly. And then I go turn the breaker box back on to the heater and come and look at the thermostat display and there's nothing. So then I ended up, I knew that there was the power problem. So then up in the attic and then found the right wire to hook to the right place on the thermos, on the uh, heater. And I, I thought, man, I am like... I'm solving problems here. I learned how to diagnose and hook this thing up all by myself. I'm not sure everybody would have wanted to do what I did, but um, it was it was cool. I also got to inspect it a little bit up there. And the other thing I learned about my heater that um, was nice is that when you take the service panel off, it lets like a safety switch off that kills the power to the whole thing anyway. It's not like the old school ones where you're in there me- messing around <laughs> with flame. big power. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I guess that's enough about thermostats. You don't seem that interested. I was really excited about it. it I'm was excited for you. It, was it sounds deal. sounds like it's a big milestone in your life. Major upgrade. <laughs> it's the little thing. Maybe we should take a break and then come back. With we'll some, try. Yeah, some we'll fresh come back conversation. and try to refocus this. Yeah. You believe Dan just talked about this for 20 minutes. <laughs> Hey guys, we're going to do a commercial break. Take some time out to thank the sponsors. When we get back, we'll uh, we'll jump into the normal Mortgage Matters. Stick with us. Don't go anywhere. Keep it locked to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. To ask a question, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We'll be back in just a few minutes. What a state of generosity. Look what my agent got for me. Just by switching to State Farm. A few hundred unexpected bucks, I couldn't ask for more. But now I've got to figure out what I should use it for. A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical, like a pet baboon with one robotic arm. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you could save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Hi, this is Jason Grody at Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. We recently made the jump to direct lender. That's right. Now we can do your loan in-house, but we still broker too. We choose based on getting the best loan terms for you. We don't know what to call it yet, but you'll call it amazing. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. 
As cold as ice. Not in my house, we're not. I just push the button right there on the phone. Apparently your office is pretty cold. Though. <laughs> that is true. The, one of the gals in our office literally brings a floor heater because the lawyers freeze us out. What are you going to do? You can't like go in there and threaten a lawyer. <laughs> Can you please take this off Arctic Blast and put it on, like, Refreshing Breeze or something? That's pretty chilly. All right, guys. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Uh, we do uh, – it's just old Dan and I today just going <laughs> – Old Dan. Old Dan and I. <laughs> well, I was Dan and I. That's the old, not just Dan. Right. We're going to be doing uh, – the show the way we do, just the two of us, no guests today. Um, today's the day that we usually do have Wes Burke on, but he's out of town, so we don't have that available to us. I had uh, put together a fair amount of uh, things here to talk about. I don't know that I'd say any of it was, uh, you know, ground-shaking stuff, but some interesting things nonetheless. Um, you know, the first thing I thought I'd talk about is, um, you know, we, we just kind of went through election season and, um, in our industry, I don't know that too many people are paying very close attention to what's been going on with the CFPB. Um, that's the consumer financial protection bureau, I think, um, a newly created entity of the government to regulate financial, industry businesses and then even a little bit beyond that came about by way of Dodd-Frank. Basically, it's been um, kind of the long arm of the law on trying to figure out uh, exactly the best way to regulate um, financial transactions to best protect borrowers. I mean, they're called the Consumer Protection Bureau, right? Um, and so it's been a long undertaking in the beginning. It, I forget what Dodd Frank was some kind of 2,800 page thing or something. And we know now that there's still, um, about 25% of the rules in that are completely untouched and unimplemented uh, at this point. But it's been wild, um, seeing the, the transformation of the industry, um, when I first got into this business in the 2002 vintage, a loan disclosure package was like seven pages. Um, you know, of course, you had like the loan application, but it was some really basic stuff. Um, and altogether, a lot of argument whether or not, um, you know, different forms were required to be produced by a, a bank or a broker or whatever. Today's disclosure package is... Um, and in the 40-page range, depending on loan program, it's a lot. Um, there's a lot going into it. And, you know, other things that Dodd-Frank has done um, to protect the consumer, ultimately, we've had fixed compensation to loan officers. So loan officers can no longer vary the closing costs, ultimately, that they're going to... They're no longer incentivized by upselling that's the right way to say yeah, it. They're not going to try to sell you an air filter. But it kind of, yeah, it comes through and it fixes the cost of the um, the transaction in some respects. And um, there there's a lot of other things that it does. But there was an interesting story this week that was written um, about 
the way uh, the new CFPB rules and how they have uh, impacted the borrower, suggesting that it's lowered the borrower's out-of-pocket expenses. Would you say that in hearing that headline that makes intuitive sense to you that that Dodd-Frank has made the out-of-pocket expenses to the borrower cheaper? I know that to be false. (laughs) (laughs) I was pretty surprised by it, you know, and part of me kind of scratched my head a little bit and said, I am shocked how expensive um, loans have gotten in terms of because of the the CFPB and um, and and I don't want to say just because of them because of Dodd Frank, but it's yeah, it may not be a direct correlation, but it's it's certainly related. I in fact I did back in the the old days when we were doing an hour show. I I did one solo and kind of talked about this issue a little bit and at the time this must have been two years ago or so at that time there were um, industry st- statistics that showed that the cost of a mortgage had gone up about 50 percent over that f- four or five year period that it went from the average cost to close was like three thousand and it had gone up to about forty five hundred dollars right and it, and it was it wasn't any one thing in particular. It was all across the board. the The fees had gone up due to a lot of regulation. So now they're showing that these fees are actually dropping, lowering the out of pocket expense of the borrower. And so I said, okay, I'll play. How has it gotten cheaper? Well, the answer is is that the cost in the actual interest rate, um, and they're also not counting the. It's this headline is for costs out of pocket. So some of the costs that are allowed to be financed rolled into the loan, not necessarily out of pocket, but a cost of the consumer nonetheless. Um, and it kind of brings you back to this principle too of if 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 for no other reason, it's more expensive for the consumer today because there's more a lack of competition than there's ever been. Um, so many brokerages. I mean, you remember 10 years ago in San Luis Obispo, how many different brokers there were around brokering loans. And these are guys that are all competing for business and offering the most competitive rates and terms that they could in order to to win the business. And today, there are very few brokers that remain in San Luis Obispo. In fact, I'd challenge you, even as an industry insider, to go on and name a few of them. They're, they're few and far between. Um, the broker model is one that, because of Dodd-Frank, has come under real strain. Um, so it's really changed the entire scope of uh, the lending industry in a very big way. And, and I'd argue in a short period of time as well. Um, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say that the um, the companies that are exiting the what the public doesn't really see is the lack of competition and um, that limited competition and the cost of the new compliance is being passed through the borrower. Um, in my experience, it's being passed through the borrower in. Um, both more closing costs as well as typically higher interest rates. I mean, at the end of the day, you still find yourself in a position where every company needs to be compliant, uh, maintain 
an appropriate training department and compliance department do things that 10 years ago were not present in mortgage companies. And so, you know, has it made it a little bit more expensive consumer? It has. Um, at the same time, is the consumer in a better environment to be borrowing safely and in not having the kind of uh, predatory loan products. And I, I kind of hesitate to even use that word because to me, predatory lending uh, means something different than it does to the federal government, I'm afraid. I don't view a 40-year loan term as a predatory loan product, but evidently the government does. Um, so anyways, it, it definitely has gotten a little bit more expensive. And I'll, I'll give you the appraisal thing as an example. Um, it used to be that appraisers were... Um, just like any other um, professional services, their reputation, their appearance, the quality of their work, their punctual nature, their ability to interact well with others, all of these things would have them in in their local community sort of a reputation of, you know, that appraiser has a good attitude, does a really high quality work. When we send them out to a client's house to go inside and walk through the master bedroom taking pictures, they're dressed appropriately, their hygiene's in good order. Uh, these things would have an appraiser that really got Got it and was focused on being a quality tradesman um, was successful. And today, after um, much government um, involvement in sort of recrafting how it works, that's not the case anymore. Uh, the appraisers that get the jobs today were the ones that signed up for the management companies first. And they may or may not be the punctual, professional, all of those things that you hope they are. So I would argue that it's, it's sort of lowered the bar across the table as far as who can go be a successful appraiser. Um, and then at the same time, the fee to the appraiser uh, – hasn't gone up the way that it's gone up to the consumer. It used it's to actually be, gone down for a lot of appraisers. Yeah, it used to be that you know you'd call up an appraiser in town that you that you liked and trusted and you knew would do a quality job for you at two hundred fifty bucks. I mean, to me that was a norm for a long time. Maybe three hundred bucks. It was a a three hundred dollar appraisal. Really felt like the norm, and you know then and the appraiser received a hundred percent of that. Of that, that's right. And amount. of course, they have overhead and insurance and all these things. Um, most of the appraisers today still have that same overhead and insurance. The appraisal management company that they have been forced now to sign up under and work through, uh, they contract uh, the appraisers out. My understanding of it is a hundred and fifty to two hundred and twenty dollars of that fee. They may be lucky to get the price of the five hundred dollar fee, five hundred bucks. So you paid now, um, and I could hear the other side. Um, in fact, let's make the other side of the argument. I'll take up that other side. As an appraisal um, management company, I'm charging $500 because we are 
approving quality licensed appraisers. We're making sure that they are the best of the best. We're making sure that the reports that they're submitting have minimal mistakes. We're making sure that it, everything goes through quality control. We're making sure that everybody follows the compliance. You know, we're doing all these things and you can kind of say, yeah, I get that. But at the end of the day, what happened is we nearly doubled the cost to the consumer. We shorted the the um, actual profit to the appraiser. And we might be a little bit better off that we're not able to collude and manipulate appraisals um, in the cases where that did happen yesteryear. Uh, but at the total end of the day, the only real metric you can measure is that the system is slower. It's got more, um, more moving parts than it ever has before. And it, it literally went up by nearly double to the consumer. So it, it's, and hard. it's harder to avoid the bad appraisers. Yeah. Yeah. From somebody inside the industry, that's right. It, it's more challenging and hard for us because we place an order into a black hole where there's a appraisal management company that hopefully has done a good diligent job of making sure the appraiser, the eligible appraisers on their list are not only qualified, but they're high caliber. Um, and we learn of who that appraiser is and what kind of uh, report they do the day we get the report. One of the other things that really, I think a big breakdown in the appraisal thing that's tough is um, now I wasn't central coast lending. Wasn't one of the companies that was hammering appraisers saying, if you don't appraise your, you know, this client's house for $500,000 for us, um, we're not going to do business with you anymore. We never played that game. And I know that it happened. I know that things got manipulated and it was difficult that way. Um, but because we never engaged in any of that thing, I'll tell you one of the big problems that that I found we lost is sometimes a client comes in and wants to do a refi and we all do our best to figure out what their property value is. That's a hard thing to determine, especially on properties that are, you know, a custom built home in a neighborhood of custom built homes. And it's hard to just say, oh, for sure that house is 400,000 bucks. You can go, you know, I think it could appraise for between 380 and 460. And at 380, you have a dead deal. At 460, your mortgage insurance is gone. So that range isn't a very dependable one to encourage somebody to go through applying for a loan and paying 500 bucks for an appraisal. Used to be able to call the appraiser and say, hey, without pushing you, we've determined that this is the range of reasonability for that property value. Is there any way without doing a full-blown inspection and without going very far into it that you can just give us an idea of what you expect um, the value might come in at? And then they'd say, oh, there's you guys are crazy. There's no way that's coming in for a penny over 380 Thank you. I can turn around to the client and say, I trust this guy bar none. And he says, we're, we're shooting the moon and it ain't going to happen. Um, and we prevent that client from wasting 500 bucks, from wasting all of the time and from, from moving forward in a transaction that is going to die in two weeks. That part of it's missing now. Yeah. 
I, I recall appraisers would, I mean, they would go and start to do the work because we, we were really confident in the value that we were going to get. And then they'd call and say, you're coming up. Short. I'm, I'm into this by a, a couple of hours here and I'm, I'm finding that we're not going to get there. Do you want me to go on? And you say, no, if you, if you're, if it's not going to happen, let's not go on. Yeah. And so then they don't charge. They just, it's a service. It's p- part of the cost of doing business. And we move on to the next. Or team. sometimes they would say, I, I did already go to the site and, um, you know, well, how about a hundred bucks for a cancellation fee instead of seeing it the rest of the way through for three or four or 500 bucks. Um, so we missed that a little bit. So there's, there's some good with the bad all in all, I'd have to say, um, if it was go back to how it was yesteryear where everybody just had free reign, um, that's not a good idea. I, I would like to see a little bit more reform today. You you look at me with a disappointing look. You don't think so? Well, I think at the end of the day, a quality underwriter can detect a, a bad appraisal. Sure. And so with all the technology that's been implemented into our industry the big production centers, the big banks that end up aggregating all of these loan transactions at the end of the day, they've crafted systems and technologies to eliminate thoughtful underwriters from needing to be employed. They can now employ lower paid, I like to call them button pushers or validators who just look at the automated engine results and just check boxes to make sure that each of the document items has been received and meets the standard don't you think in part though like part of the free fall of the housing business altogether like nationally what we went through in this last recession that a one real good reason was that the toxic loans weren't understood um it was bad income it was bad assets it was manipulated appraisals there was all these problems and in order to restore confidence and have everybody like on the investment side of buying real estate, but also those that buy mortgage securities and all that to know that we've made some good headway here in getting rid of all of that garbage. And one of the main things that, um, in terms of making an investment like that, of course you want to document the borrower's ability to repay, evaluate their employment history, look at their credit history. You want to Look at as much stuff as you can to get an idea about what that borrower's likely performance is. But at the same time, when you're the one wiring out the several hundred thousand, half a million dollars for the house, you really want to be sure that the value of that house isn't overestimated. You want to be sure that the collateral that you're loaning money on, because let's face it, the borrower can step off the curb and get smashed by a bus tomorrow. And then all you're left with is how much can I sell this house for? And if you began on a false premise because of a manipulated appraisal that it was a $500,000 house, and it turns out when you plant a sign in the front yard and offer it to the general public, the best it's going to get is four twenty-five. dollars um, That's a problem. So in this case, having removed that inflated aspect of it altogether increases everybody's confidence in the quality investment quality of home loans. I think that that played a critical role in changing the average psyche to whether or not home loan business was one that could be trusted. 
So I think in that respect, it probably did its job. I like to think also, though, that we're going to find some kind of a medium ground here soon where they come back and say, you know, we want every uh, underwriter, every loan officer, every borrower to rate the quality of the interaction with the appraiser to say, Hey, was this person on time? Was this person pleasant? You know, there it's, we've all been there where you have somebody in your house because you have to have them in, be it a plumber or an appraiser or whatever. And they come in, you know, an hour late, grumpy, the worst. I mean, we had, um, what do you have? Oh, we had a we had a direct TV guy in our house recently, um, and it took a day to get the foul stench of stale cigarettes out of the living room because this guy smelled so bad. That's not that's not something that um, you want to be putting up with. Where you know there's not a check and balance in place for that right now with the appraisal management companies. That's the kind of stuff that bothers me about it. Or you know when it's like we know there's appraisers on the list around here where we want to outright refuse that person to be able. I don't care who doesn't get the assignment or really even who does, but there are a couple people that I'm, no, you cannot be on our list. That appraiser notoriously does like a turn and burn job with plenty of errors and not thoughtful consideration of like quality and location and just constantly turning in reports that are full of holes. I do not want that person getting our order and, um, you know, some of those appraisers are able to hang on. I do want to say, as a, as a rule, the appraisers in our county, I think they're pretty good. There's a lot of appraisers. And I know we have a lot of appraisers that listen to the show. Um, there are some fantastic appraisers here in town that really do a good job. In fact, when I get a report in for a loan in process, one of the first things I do is look at that appraisal. Um, almost as important as did you hit the value, I like to flip down to the name. And there's so many names in town um, where you see the name and you go, okay, this is going to be a good report. Um, it's pretty few anymore that you look at the name and go, uh-oh, <laughs> you're going to want to sit down and go through this one with a fine-tooth comb. Um, so all in all, I think the appraisal business is a good one. But that's just one example of how new regulation and compliance has increased the cost to the end user who's the homeowner. That's cutting into affordability. That's cutting into um, what these guys are uh, the cash out of pocket that they're going to have. It's, it's raising the bar, you know, that we keep talking on the show here about why the millennials aren't buying. Well, at every turn we've made it a little harder and more expensive. So, um, that's, that's a part of it. Um, and yeah. So anyway, that article about the CFPB is saying that it's lowered the, these new compliance regulations have lowered the cost to borrowers. And all I could think back was, just remember that limiting competition increases the cost to the end user. That is. Did it offer any actual numbers, any statistics to support that claim that things have gotten cheaper? Because I, I, I mean, we do it every day. It's just it hasn't. That's not a right. factual statement. It hasn't. Um, 
I'll I'll pull up some of the numbers and share with you okay. what the what the claims are. In the meantime, here we've got a caller waiting patiently on the lines. In fact, let me remind the listeners that you can call in to five four three eight eight three zero if you want to ask a question or share a comment. We've got Joanne waiting patiently on the line. Good morning, Joanne. Good morning. Yes, I had an appraiser here. Oh, it was in July. That came to the door, and I knew right away that I didn't want this man in my house, and he had his girlfriend with him. Oh. So I called the bank that had sent him, and I told them, and he said, tell him to leave. Yeah. And so I did, and he left. That's that's and, really one of the only tools left in in our bag anymore to, to try to choose the appraiser is is when they call you or if they show up to your house and they don't sound or appear professional tell them you're canceling the order and then we just reorder it again and it's a new random selection and hopefully it's not that guy again yeah because eight out of ten are good and the bank knew that i was really mad and upset and the bank ended up having to pay the 75 dollar fee that the cancellation showed you up or he, they, but anyway, they the I charge, ended huh? up with a wonderful lady from Lompoc. I mean, she was so professional and was so fair and accepted a list of the uh, upgrades that I had made in my house to give to my children with my will and included it in the report. She was fabulous. That's great. Yeah, there's some really good appraisers around still and... Um, it, it's good to hear a story like yours yeah. that, that you found one. You just have to stand up for yourself. You do. That's right. If you don't, <laughs> if you're not liking the person, then don't invite them into your house. Just it's easy exactly. to order it again. That's great advice, Joanne. Okay, thanks. Thanks for calling. Yeah, I mean that's if if you're getting a bad feeling, if if you don't like something about them, you don't have to let them in. It's not say required. No. You say no, it, and your loan officer can order, make the order again. By the way, Joanne brings up another great point too: is that when you're gonna sell your house and an appraiser's there, or you're gonna refinance your house and an appraiser's there, handing them a list uh, is perfectly legal and ethical. Um, a list of the upgrades that you've done. These guys have, uh, and and when you go and poll appraisers, they're all going to agree with this comment. They know only what they can tell online from the last time the house sold, and then walking through there right now, looking at what they can see with their eyes. They lack all of the perspective about what you've done in both keeping up with maintenance, you know, I mean, it's obviously when you walk through a house, you can tell if there's deferred maintenance or not. But if you've really gone out of your way to make sure you keep, you know, the roof in good shape, you repainted your your fascia outside, you've installed rain gutters, inside you got rid of that grout and tile counter and you installed a, a granite countertop and you, you know, as you just walk through the home, there's all these little things that you've done through the years they don't know that those are things that you've done. Maybe they can say that, hey, that house is in good shape, but that's different than you giving them a list of, hey, this is everything that I've done to the home. Um, then in the report, they can say, rather than say the house is in good shape, they can say, this house has freshly painted trim. The roof was done 24 months ago. They just upgraded to granite. They you know, changed out these appliances or got a new um, energy efficient heating system. Those kind of things, that's so 
um, critical to inform the appraiser. Otherwise, they're left to guess or assume that it was already there, and and you're going to miss some of that. So that that's a good tip to anybody that's about to go through an appraiser. Put together a list to make sure that you um, share with them the the level of care that you've put into the maintenance and um, and you know upgrading of your home. It's a big deal. Specifically with this appraisal issue, one of the advantages that our company has being a direct lender is ability to hear stories like this and we can we have a a a group of appraisers that we know and trust and you know it's you know about 10 10 people or so in our area that get first crack at any of our orders so when we hear a story like this like joanne's sharing we say oh we want that person to be a part of our list yeah so that's right. It's nice. Not not every company and, has that ability. Or you hear about somebody that showed up and made some a, a homeowner feel uncomfortable you can for them. any reason, especially bringing somebody to your house. That's yeah. the kind of thing where you can say, you know what? We're not going to do that again. So to keep that from happening, we, we want that person off of the list. It almost seemed to me like maybe they were checking out the house, too, just for other reasons. Makes you wonder. You bring somebody else through. That's not really cool. Yeah. I guess we weren't done with Joanne. She's back. Yes, I just had another comment. Sure. Beside each um, uh, thing that, that we had done to the home, I put the price that it cost us. Yeah. And then I totaled it at the bottom, and then I put the price that we paid the contractor. So she had some real figures. Yep. That's good. That's awesome. And I thank you for that. Um the your thoroughness and then just reminding everybody that's just a great idea Uh, and if you know an appraiser ask them they'll tell you they love that getting that direction and understanding that you know hey when i did that i i I made those upgrades and i paid 1500 bucks for it they know then oh that's awesome you're investing that money that has an impact on the value of your house and they love to know it well i just think it's good business and i really appreciate your program thank you so much thank you so, Dan, I, I re-accessed the article here that I read um, from the CFPB, and uh, there's a bit of um, majestic vagueness to it uh, in terms of what the actual monetary um, change is. But here's the claim, is that due to Dodd-Frank, the 3% cap rule on what uh, a loan originator could charge in upfront fees and commission, um, by that cap limits those upfront costs to no more than 3% of the loan amount in most cases. So a uh, $500,000 loan, they may only charge you a maximum of $15,000. $15,000. When was the last time you made 15000 bucks on a loan? You know, so okay, I, I get it. That changed the cost of loans um, between the coasts. <laughs> or it changed. I, I'm not even sure about that. I think, yeah, like out in middle America where a house is 125 yeah, grand, 3% it didn't is... change costs here right. on the central coast because no one was, was charging that maximum 3% fee. Or the people that were were the just outrageous crooks and they yeah, lost they got their like ability a to, a, to a year. go do highway robbery yeah. every day. Uh, here's the Here's the interesting thing, though. To compare the actual costs of mortgages, compare the APR rather than just the interest rate because the APR incorporates these various fees. So 
since Dodd-Frank rolls out this um, cap of 3%, you're going to compare APRs now to know whether or not loans have gotten cheaper to the borrower. Uh, hey, newsflash, APR is related to interest rate, and it takes interest rate plus certain fees um, that increase the cost of the transaction and give you a number. However, um, just shoot from the hip here. If the 30-year fixed was 8%, what would the APR be? Somewhere a little north of 8%, probably. If interest rates were 4%, what would the APR be? Just a little bit north of 4%. Can you now say that when APR changes from 8 to 4%, it's because um, Fees these have gotten caps have gotten cheaper to the borrower? No, it's because no, the rate it's because the interest changed. rate environment has changed, and these things have come along relatively. So, um, you know, again, I, I think the point here is that it's – these regulations do make it more expensive to the borrower, but there is some kind of happy middle ground. There are some benefits gained from the added, from these caps, you know? If, if there are whole loan shops in, let's say, Las Vegas, Nevada, where they gouged people six points in a row, but because of their good reputation or something, they were able to do that for years on end, this rule just slashed their commission in half to 3%. Um, Making 3% on loans in um, the Central Coast of California is just not the norm. It's not something it that, uh, no. So at any rate, kind of, a, kind of an interesting little article. So now that, yeah, that's kind of where we've come. Uh, I don't really see it changing. I, I kind of think this is where we're going to be for a while. Sure. I just had I a caller that didn't yeah. want to, that, you know, I told him we we're up against the heartbreak. So real briefly, he wanted to know... Um, why an appraiser wouldn't um, consider paying off a $25,000 sewer assessment fee as part of the appraisal? I want to, I, I understand what they're talking about. And in fact, it's coming up on loans every day now where we have, you know, purchase and refinance transactions from Los Osos. There's a sewer assessment that is now beginning to show up on the title report. And underwriters are asking about this. We've seen the appraiser kind of take it into consideration. You know, one of the things I got to say about it is that the appraisal here for that is it's hardest. So first of all, the appraising is sort of equal parts art and science. You don't, there's not just truly a right or wrong way to do it. Um, and if you went and talked to a bunch of different appraisers about this issue, you're going to find a bunch of different responses. Um, my feeling is that we all knew the sewer was coming for long enough and the uncertainty around the sewer held property values down. And now that we understand what it is and that it's a $25,000 assessment, I think now the market can normalize. I don't believe it needs to be taken into consideration very much. Uh, if some appraisers are saying that it impacts the value by $25,000 negative. I mean, wouldn't it? If given the option to buy two identical houses, one has not paid the sewer assessment and one has, would you be willing to pay more for the one that has paid the sewer assessment already that you're not going to be responsible for? I'll tell you after the break. We got to do this break here. We got a few minutes. We're going to be out. Then when we get back. We'll talk more about that. We'll hop on in and talk about sewer again. It's been a while since we've done that. Stick around for more Mortgage Matters.
All right, everybody, welcome back to Mortgage Matters. Thanks much for being with us. Hey, before the break, we got a call that we didn't have time to fully explore. And I think most of you guys are aware of this, but that break is one that's um, it's on hard time. We can't push it back for a minute while we finish the thought or anything. So we kind of got forced out a little bit early. Um, but the question was related to sewer assessment. If yeah. you've paid your sewer assessment out in Los Osos, does that make your home more valuable? Wouldn't an appraiser factor that into the final value of your home? And you brought up a great point that... As soon as we turned off the microphones. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So check it out. Um, the appraiser is going to take your house and compare it to three other houses. Um, in fact, usually six these days. Three that have sold recently. Usually four that have sold and two that are listed. Yeah. Right, if if available, or at least three that have sold and two three sold and three listed. If there are four relevant solds and a couple listed, that's good too. Bottom line is they're really looking for six different properties to try to get an idea of what's going on in that marketplace as far as what's sold recently, but also what's currently offered for sale. Um, so here's my answer. Um, this is going to be my answer on the topic uh, for everybody is. What do the comps say? Now, let's just say in scenario one here that I'm selling my house and I've paid my sewer assessment. I wrote a $25,000 check. Um, obviously, that's material information that my appraiser um, needs to know. They're also going to, appraisals also check the title report. They're also going to know that my assessment's been paid as opposed to being outstanding. Um, and so, does that make my house worth 25 grand more? 25 grand more than what? Um, more than the comps. So yeah, let's hone in on that. How about the comps? Those three houses that sold recently, if all three of them have paid their assessments, paid them straight up dollar for dollar, now, no, my house isn't worth more than those because we're all uh, comparable in that attribute. That actual adjustment of 25,000 bucks is the same across the board. So the argument can be made that it, that it, is it fits and it's normal. Now, let's say that I have paid my sewer assessment and my three comparables have not paid their assessment. Um, well, that then would be that my house probably is worth more money. And I say probably because paying the full assessment isn't really very different than having a swimming pool or having solar on your house or something like that, where it is going to make it more marketable to a different buyer. So like if, I, if I'm a buyer and I'm going to look at house one and house two, house one has a, they both have an assessment of 25 grand, but the owner has already paid it on house one. That's going to sway me into buying that house. So that it figures into the marketability that way. Um, kind of feel this way about, you know, should I remodel my bathroom before I sell it? Sure, it's gonna. You're not probably gonna get it dollar for dollar back. Maybe you will, but it's gonna make you more marketable than the other house for sale that has the outdated bathroom. That's just common sense. Um, so the answer in Los Osos, as far as how that goes right now, is the appraisers are finding out whether or not you paid your assessment. The um, the they know on the comps whether or not their assessment's been paid, and we're sort of in that weird transition period right now where. Um, 
it's not totally clear exactly how it's all going to line up. But the bottom line is, is it just compares to the comps. And, and I've already seen it where um, some assessment was paid and they did, they took off 25,000 bucks from the next house on the grid. So I know that there's going to be some science in between, you know, where it's paid and where it's not, but there's always going to be an art in how the payment of that affects the marketability of your home. So it, it remains one of the many attributes of a home that have an impact on its value and marketability. So there's not really a clear cut and dry response to that. It's going to be case by case based on the actual appraisal assignment and what comps are available um, at that time. Does that make sense? Yeah. I feel like that was a really political answer. Oh, it makes sense. Appraising's that way, though. You know, it's like you got to you say, well, what is my... Um, 500 square foot sunroom mean to my house. I spent $20,000 on that enclosed sunroom. It looks great. So I want the appraiser to basically come through and say, your house would have appraised for 400 grand, but the $20,000 sunroom you put on looks great. So I'm writing you up for 420. That's not how it works. The next house he goes to down the road here has an enclosed sunroom and it's a lot like yours. You know, maybe it's not as new or whatever, but it's pretty similar. Um, said, well, that house is sold for 400 grand with the sunroom. So in that case, your sunroom isn't really worth more money. Uh, we already have a recent demonstration of what the market's willing to pay for that sunroom. So you don't. Now, if you're, you're, um, those other houses that sell, if they've sold for more because they have a sunroom and you don't have one, then it's reasonable that they find the value of the sunroom and kind of try to to knock your value down a little bit for it because you're lacking that amenity. That's the part of the appraisal that becomes the real art. And it's um, oftentimes in terms of your own property, it's hard to, to feel how the logic works because every homeowner thinks their house is worth more than it is. Um, every home buyer wants it to be worth, um, you know, less so they feel like they're getting a better deal. It's always a function of um, an appraiser trying to find that balance of science and art of how to value the property. Yeah. I like right in line with that conversation, I can think of a recent appraisal that was done on a on a home where a a, a couple had completed a very nice um, guest unit to their home um, so that their aging mother could live with them through her final years. And this wasn't like your little three hundred square foot studio guest unit kind of thing. This was like a an, over a thousand square feet of like 1200 square feet of guest space with newly a, constructed newly constructed yeah. you know nice finishes and things like i mean this is a nice place to live um, on their property and they felt that it should have been added as part of the total home square footage and just given that 300 plus dollar per square foot kind of value to it but instead the appraiser there's a there's a section on the grid of comparable sales for guest unit or accessory units. Sometimes it's just yes or no. Yeah, it's just a yes or a no, and a dollar value is assessed for it. And, you know, that was one where we actually dug into that a little deeper because we knew this wasn't your typical guest unit that you just assign a, a value of 25 grand and move on. No, we looked at the other comps and found that one of the other three solds had a guest unit, but its guest unit was clearly inferior. It was... Right. 
it was a third of the square footage. It wasn't finished in the same quality. There was no way that these should just be lined equal. up and said, oh, they both have guest units. Those are equal value. No way. So that's that, something that you have the opportunity to argue. And that's an example where... Um, being thorough and making sure the appraisal is the appraiser is being thorough is that it's you know because here's the reality is that guy on a refi transaction the appraiser doesn't know what number you're after doesn't know what it takes to make your deal he's gonna go in there and drill on down for two hours trying to figure out the difference in what this guest house is worth more than that guest house and let's just say you're talking an $800,000 property where the loan being refinanced is 150 grand. There's no point in putting in that level of work into that report. It may not matter. But then sometimes it comes on down to it where he calls the $800,000 house worth 725 because he's not doing the extra work and um, figuring out the true value of that really superior guest house. And then that new value pushes the loan to value against the property over a threshold that maybe um, knocks them out of eligibility. That's a problem. So, you know, that's the kind of thing Dan's talking about where when we get that, we're going to lay it down and basically figure out and say, is this all reasonable? We have a better eye at going through an appraisal and then arguing um, that they weren't thorough or that they overlooked something. Or honestly, I mean, I looked at a report this week where the appraiser um, left, like made an error in the bedroom count of a property. Um, called a three bedroom, three bath, a two bedroom, two bath. And I, you know, that makes a big difference. And so sometimes, I mean, we're all human. Sometimes you just kind of fat finger the keyboard and hit the two because it's right next to the three where you didn't mean to. Um, but that stuff can have a pretty big impact on the appraisal. Um, so yeah. As long as we're on this topic, there's one more big issue that I, I want to bring up. And it's something that comes up from clients. Why isn't the land a bigger component of the appraisal? I mean, a lot of people complain, like, I've got I've got five acres. That comp only has one acre. Why why am I not, not getting more benefit for that? Yeah. It's clearly worth more because of this additional land that I have. Right. And we all know that land's expensive in California and especially expensive here where we live. Well, I think the biggest reason is that it comes down to preference, okay? Let's just say that you and I are in the same neighborhood, and I'm on a half acre and you're on two acres. Um, what's better? Two acres. No, four it's times not. Better. Nonsense, man. <laughs> That's four times the amount of work I got to mow and weed and landscape and take care of, and I got the CDF sending me letters about keeping the brush height below four inches, and I don't have time to deal with that because I work 60 hours a week. That's space. Your, that means no neighbor. Your, that's, four, that's three less neighbors around my house. Your two-acre parcel is a nuisance. You don't even <laughs> use it. I can throw the, the ball for my dog on my half acre, and when it comes time to doing my work, I would just prefer a half acre parcel. What well, see, I, I got a kind of a point here too with Dan. Like my backyard's got fruit trees and it's nice backyard. The neighbors, I mean the house is probably approximately equal value, probably. Sure. But the neighbors have weeds and nothing in their backyard. Yeah, so but why do they why but do I they don't, not consider the the fact that the yard is a finished yard and it's a nice yard? 
It's factored. It's, it's factored, factored to some degree. I, I play a little bit with but, Dan here about lot, lot size. Um, but the point here that I'm trying to make is that 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 size of that land is not always the the attribute that everybody's interested in you know and this is why there are condos for example where you don't have to maintain your yard at all that's the responsibility of the HOA you know and maybe health prevents you from mowing every week or just lifestyle by choice whatever it is that lack of having that extra maintenance and that kind of thing for some people is a really big deal. There are other people that say, I don't mind mowing it. I love that I have this land. It makes me the, you know, the, the American dream. So it's going to be marketable to different people for different reasons. Now, how do you go in there to value it? The difference between my half acre and your two acres in our neighborhood together in Atascadero is, um, nothing. You can't subdivide your two acres. We're all in a, you know, the minimum lot size and it is what it is. So on the appraisal, we look at highest and best use. That's the current use. It's not, you don't have, um, you know, if I pay $200,000 for my half acre lot, um, are you then paying $800,000 for your two acre lot? Maybe, maybe not. Um, most of the time land is bought with cash. So that's also a driver of it. But in the end, it's like, how do you value it? It's always frustrating to people that have land and are being compared to lower um, land. You give that example of the one versus five acres. Typically on an appraisal, that's like a $30,000 investment. And there's one part of me that just wants to go, dude, you show me in Slow County where I could buy four acres for 30000 bucks, and I'm going to say you did a good job on that appraisal. And by the way, if you know in Slow County where I can buy four acres for 30000 bucks, please call me right now because I'm on my way with a checkbook. It, it doesn't exist. The difference between those lots, if they were both offered for sale, is probably a $180,000 lot versus a $300,000 lot. That's a lot of land. The thing about land is that they're not making any more of it, so it's getting more scarce by the day. Those land values are frustrating in the adjustments, but I really think it's the interest of the appraiser of saying, you know, the highest and best use is just your house on your lot. And then what's the most reasonable thing that the average person, so let's say that is two totally identical houses on, on a one acre lot versus a two acre lot. How much more would the average person pay to get the identical house on twice the land? You tell me, what is it? Is it 15 grand? Is it 30 grand? Is it 200 grand? It's probably not 200 grand. Um, I, it feels insulting when you're the guy getting comped to a lower square footage parcel, but the answer is it it's thirty thousand bucks. It's fifteen thousand bucks. It's whatever the it really depends on the, the free market is willing to pay, right? Yeah. You know, as you you go offer your two acre parcel for sale and somebody that has always wanted two acres is there with a bag full of cash and isn't even gonna get an appraisal. He doesn't even care what you say it's worth. He's got the cash and he's going to buy it. That's a you know that's one of those things that gets hard to measure. Uh, but yeah, it is. It's always a frustrating it's a tough thing. thing. Ideally, in an appraisal, you're not having that kind of variation in lot size. You're trying to find 
like properties that are similar in all features, not right. just square footage and bed bath count. You but also it, want to find similarities. But it comes in up lots where things. somebody does an addition, like they are on a half acre parcel and they make their seventeen hundred square foot house a twenty five hundred square foot house. And then the only comps are large the only acres. Twenty five hundred acre or twenty five hundred square feet houses happen to be on five acres around there. So now now you're tasked with saying, well what's that five acres worth? And you know what? This is why it's complicated. Well, is your five acres flat and usable or is it a hillside? Right. Yeah. Is it covered in trees? Like, is it income producing? You know, or, all of yeah. these different things. And sometimes, like in a Tascadero, which is where a lot of these big parcels are, it's like you tell them, yeah, I got a 2,000 square foot house on five acres. That sounds cool. Then you go out and you look at it. That five acres is like a 30% incline through a canyon. It's covered in trees. And you're expected to keep those weeds mode. You're never going to build anything on that. You don't even walk yourself to the top of your five acre parcel because it's like crawling up the cliff's face. That's not that valuable. It's cool. You got a good view or nobody's going to be able to build right on top of you. Like what happens down in the city, but that land isn't really worth what a five acre flat subdividable parcel of land is. And then in, in the residential lending world, if that's what we're talking is a flat five acre subdividable, then that's you not get really into, a residential loan now. Yeah. The highest and best use of it's that development. is to sell to a developer for a million bucks and cash in. Yeah. So that gets out of the scope of residential lending anyway. Um, but anyway, it's, it's a great conversation. I like talking about that stuff. Um, and uh, I think, I do think it makes sense, but it always reminds me back that being an appraiser is more of an art than a science and finding how to smooth those wrinkles and compare two things that are different, um, and trying to apply what the, the free market would likely fetch for that in-ground pool versus the um the barn that's got you know i mean this is the kind of thing they'll come up against well this house has an in-ground pool um that's pretty cool some people that's huge for uh, i was working with my parents right now they're considering buying a new house the house they found has an in-ground pool they couldn't really be less interested in having an in-ground pool my mom and dad said you know it'd be kind of nice when the grandkids come to visit and everything are you gonna run the pump on that pool for 20 hours a day Buy all the chemicals, maintain the whole thing. You're opening a whole can of worms by having a pool, and it's going to be more expensive. Is that worth it? You know, you've never owned a pool before. Are you sure? They did some research and decided it wasn't. Um, this house has been on the market for a while, uh, I think partly because of the pool. So I said, hey, I've had people that find a house, and it's their dream house, except it has a pool, and they don't want a pool. And you can cut some concrete back and bring in a couple truckloads of dirt in and make a backyard out of that pool. It's it's true. That really can be done. It sounds wild, but that just goes to show you that some people will pay a premium for a pool and others will spend a pretty penny to fill in that hole. So it's all a function of what the market wants at that given time. Who's the ready, willing, and able buyer and what's their preference? That's what the appraiser is trying to uh, put on the paper. That's a hard thing to put on the paper. I was going to say, compare <laughs> compare this place as an in-ground pool, whether or not you're the pool desirer, and then this house over here has a large outbuilding shop that has a roll-up door capable of backing a motorhome into. Okay. 
these two properties, those are their big attributes. They're obviously going to attract a totally different crowd, but both have a 2,000 square foot home and they happen to be next door to one another. So those are the most recent comps we have to use. How do you go on to say, okay, well, this one's going to lose $25,000 because it doesn't have a cool RV door garage. And then this one over here doesn't have a pool. So it's going to lose 25,000 bucks because it doesn't have a pool. Um, it, that's complex. And they say, well, that value of that pool seems arbitrary. So now you need to go find another house that does have a pool so you could substantiate what the pool did in comparison to the 2,000 square foot house. It's a complicated deal. They do the best they can, but oftentimes it's hard um, to, to smooth the wrinkles. Yeah, if every property was identical, it'd be real easy to appraise. Dude, like Orange County where they build... When's the last time you saw an appraisal where there was just identical comps? It's rare. I mean, maybe a, a condominium. It's or something. pretty rare. Yeah, <laughs> um, Dove Creek, maybe like some properties like that. We see them show up, and you go, "Oh, that makes sense. Look at them. That's easy. They're the same. They're model match floor plans, and the upgrades are like similar in both. They kind of went with the construction minimums, and you go, "Well, yeah, that's not hard at all. You don't need to do any thinking about that. It's just you know what it's sold for is what this one's worth." Kind of a kind of a funny thing appraising in eclectic custom home neighborhoods of the Central Coast. Yeah, which is pretty much every neighborhood in the Central Coast. Yep. All right, we got a phone call now. Um, we're droning on about appraisals too long. If you guys want to no, call, I think people like talking about appraisals. Five four three eight eight three zero. You can chime in on it. We got Jim and Slow. Good morning, Jim. Welcome, to Mortgage Matters. Good morning. Just a quick question. Uh, we live in Los Osos up on the hill. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's got uh, we've got some tremendous views, of course. But what what basis do you operate on as far as value when you one house has a uh, really good view and another just a partial one? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll listen on the air. Sure, Thank thanks. Um, so this view thing, by the way. Uh, is not quite like swimming pools. Most people would agree that having a view is pretty cool. Yeah, um, I could imagine there's some people that are scared of expansive views. It makes them feel like the world's a scary place. But I think probably 90-something percent of people would stand up at, a, at an impressive view and say, that's worth something, right? Yeah, and, and view is one of the... F- one of the areas where there is some subjectivity to totally. the adjustment that's so the seen. appraiser at first is going to try to say, well, let's try to find what's sold and and then compare what the market dictated their view was worth. So we have a house on the hill with a good view, and then we have a house down in the flats with a limited or no view. If the house is, if you can figure out that, ah, you know, square footage wise, there's a $10,000 difference and um, condition wise, there's a $10,000 difference and whatever. So in the end, you get on down to it saying house to house, these things are, you know, they're within $30,000 of one another. But then the one on the hill that sold most recently sold for $250,000 more than the one in the flats. The only conclusion you can come away with is that's a $200,000 view. Um, so it gets tricky. But it's so hard because usually those nice view properties are in the more desirable neighborhood, which you can have two equal homes on paper, but just the neighborhood difference well, minus the view. It, you're right about there. that in your entirety, but here's what makes it even harder. 
those really awesome view homes, like the house that you have worked your whole life to end up at, those don't sell that much. So now you have this challenge of the houses on the block haven't sold. Um, there just hasn't been a sale in a year. Those people aren't selling houses. A lot of those guys don't even have mortgages. Um, so it then now you have this really, it's like, okay, well, we all suspect this is a $200 view. That's kind of what it's been historically, but nobody's transacted one up on the hill for years. So now the appraiser comes along to do a refi for Jim, right? And says, hey, I'm going to appraise this house. And he says, he gets to the house and goes, man, this view is something else. Um, how many other view homes have sold in the neighborhood? And he's saying in the last two years, there have been none. Oh, okay. Well, how about the houses down below? Well, those houses have been selling for, you know, X amount of dollars. Now that appraiser is sort of like, suspended in context of just not knowing how you pick that number, oftentimes that lens, I mean, it turns into a lending problem where the appraiser can't provide a comp to say what that view recently sold for. And that's when it can't really be justified that it's a lot of money. Um, they struggle and underwriting takes issue with those appraisals. Um, and, and we find that a lot around here. There's a limited comp, so it gets tricky to do. Um, you know, it's just, it's hard to put onto paper. So it's one of those things where just like having a pool or just like having an out structure or whatever, you really need to be able to do what we call a paired analysis, where you look at something with the, the same, like a pair of traits and you look at that same thing and you decide, it by logic, by comparing this to the ones that don't have it, this is how the numbers shake out. And it gets hard around here because there isn't that volume of sales that there are in other places where there's a lot more great views of the estuary or you know great views of downtown slow from Foothill. Those houses don't transact often. Um, sometimes they transact in all cash. Um, it's just a pretty small supply, so it gets to be a pretty tricky thing. I got a point. Um, say in like um, Pismo Heights. Yeah. The expensive homes up there. Some of those homes, well, a lot of those homes have a, have a really great view of Pismo Beach and Oceano and Avila, and, and you can see the whole bay. But then sometimes as you get further up under the mountain or some of the other streets, they don't have the view of the ocean. Their right. home is just as nice. But they have a great view of Price Canyon and they have the, the valley, valley and stuff like that. Yeah, so, we, so. We, to, to answer Jim's question maybe a little bit more thoroughly and then also your point here mm -hmm. is that usually there ends up like some sort of an arbitrary number picked that's kind of accepted as reasonable. But like an expansive view, like an ocean view, they would say – there's a line on the appraisal that adjusts for everybody's view and it literally and there's will a small be, description. Yeah. So this view is expansive ocean view. This one's partial canyon. Filtered, yeah. Or there's like filtered views where you're looking in between houses at your ocean view. Yeah. And so ideally there was three homes sold that all have the same ocean view. Um, but if you're, let's say equal houses, but you're and this is the same thing about how we evaluate when you're buying or selling real estate where somebody could potentially build into your airspace and block your view. Like imagine that. I'm buying this million dollar house in Pismo Heights because the view is unreal. 
but the lot across the street is vacant, the zoning would allow them to build a 60 foot structure. And should they do that, I lose a hundred percent of my views. So now as I go to buy my million dollar house, I got to say, you know what? I'm going to offer you $800,000 for this house because that person across the street can go and destroy my view and value. Um, and there are cases in down there in Pismo and Shell where somebody buys the airspace of their neighbor so that that view can never be obstructed. Or they'll come in and buy the lot down there or the the one-story bungalow that's below them and make that a rental to protect the view that they have. Um, but point being is that those views are, um, if it's expansive ocean view and it cannot be um, obstructed by anything, that's worth a lot of money. And sometimes the equal house behind them is facing the canyon. So you'll see this house is $90,000 ocean view. That house is a $30,000 canyon view. We'll see things like that lined up on an appraisal. But in the end, you really what you're trying to do is figure out what the free market believes that's worth um, and put it on paper. And that's a really difficult thing to do. It is. And it's not to say that an ocean view always trumps a valley view. That's that's not the case, because it's recognized that some people prefer, you know, to look at green instead of blue. Yeah. Or, or the deer that will come through that yeah. pasture and that the way that you know, the wildflowers bloom versus looking across 101 into the ocean. You know, there's there's preferences to different people. Um, but yeah, anyway. it's more about the expansiveness and the quality of the view, not exact, not what you're necessarily looking at. And could it potentially be obstructed at some point in the yeah. future? What's interesting, too, is the whole I mean, when we talk about the range of view adjustments, I think we see anywhere from a, you know, a $5,000 adjustment for view to on the high side, it's rare when you get into six-figure adjustments for view. I've seen 200000 up in like yeah. the Pismo Heights. I was going to say, I've seen it part, that high, but it's rare. For the most part, view adjustments like... Five to 50. Yeah. Five I, to 50,000 I would probably even say five range. to 25,000. Yeah. That's, that's more the normal range. You know, when you're talking really amazing views, unobstructable... 180 plus degree views, then you're getting into the six figure adjustments. But it also depends on the value of the actual structure too. Sure. Um, it's hard to, ass to assign a $200,000 view adjustment to a one bedroom, 500 square foot shack because the structure itself isn't even worth $200,000. So you got to remind yourself to go all the way back to the goal now is saying that we're trying as if a person was ready to buy one of these two houses on the grid, in the appraisal, on the grid. How would they value these things up? And they say, you know what? This house has no view, but it's a three-bedroom, two-bath. It's in good condition. It's got stainless steel appliances and granite countertops. The other house that is the same price has no granite, no stainless steel. It's um, maybe... 200 square feet smaller, but has a really awesome view of the rock that's unobstructable. Um, so the appraiser comes through and he says, you know what? This house is worth $5,000 less for condition it, because it doesn't have those upgrades. It's worth $5,000 less. It doesn't have granite. It's worth $5,000 less for that 200 square feet it's missing. It's worth $5,000 less um, for all of these reasons and just say, so the, that place is... $20,000 less desirable than the one next door. However, it's that view. 
And that view then does mean that they're both worth 400 grand. So some people are going to elect the upgrades and condition over the view. And some people say we can always upgrade appliances and countertops and stuff, but you can never add yourself a view of the rock. So, you know, you just never know what it's going to fetch in the market, but it's that art of trying to find out how to justify it on paper. That is the task of the appraisal. The thoroughness, by the way, of that appraiser to really make a thoughtful analysis of all of that, that's that same appraiser that we want to be punctual, that we want to be fair and intelligent and be on time and not stink and all of those things. So when somebody shows up to your house with their girlfriend looking like they're in their bathrobe and, you know, stinking, you know they're not going to give you that same level of thoughtfulness and care that the, you know, over all of it. Their personal life appears to be a mess, if only based on their judgment to bring their girlfriend to your property. Um, that's the kind of thing where um, just consider that. I mean, bringing the conversation full circle. Appraising takes a, it's a lot of work. It's challenging. Um, there, it's a, I think it's a, a tough job, a big task. Um, there are great appraisers, but yeah, you're the, the good layer of defense. And, you know, and also kind of what we talked about before, giving that list of upgrades and all this thing, that's what you're doing is saying, I did all those things. Let me have my $5,000 adjustment for condition and for um, quality. And, you know, hey, don't forget to look at that view. If out of this bedroom, you got this view of the smokestacks over iconic Morro Bay. Pointing those things out to the appraiser is pretty big deal. Um, guys, time to do the final commercial break of the show. Take some time out to thank the sponsors. We'll be back in a few minutes with more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home. Just call 543-LOAN, just call 543-LOAN, just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso, Morro Bay, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. Central Coast Lending, the mortgage experts. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. What a state of generosity, look what my agent got for me, just by switching to State Farm. A few hundred unexpected bucks, I couldn't ask for more, but now I've got to figure out what I should use it for. A new bike would be radical, but maybe something practical, like a pet baboon with one robotic arm. Get to a better state, State Farm. Switch to State Farm and you could save. To find out more in San Luis Obispo, call Agent Susan Rodriguez. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. 
Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. guys welcome back um wow just got 20 minutes ago see how that works yeah dan mentioned during the break so the cool little impromptu appraisal show we've been doing um but it's all driven by by listener questions this has yeah. been a good a good sh- show for call-ins and uh, yeah, yeah we I like, like that it. so you don't i did i brought a few things about jobs and uh that kind of thing that i wanted to talk about a little bit are you asking me to forego that yeah you are yeah Man, okay. That way, that way we can use this show later, and people will hear it not being able to identify Thinking what it's day it fresh is, content. and you won't even be able to try to hone in on it based on like the unemployment rate or anything like that. Okay, <laughs> we'll just remain majestically vague about that. That that's your uh, the word de jour, huh? I'm a little bit disappointed though because I put some time into this other part here to skip it. No, yeah, I mean, we, there's yeah, some ground to cover here. 18 minutes, 15 of, minutes. Is that 15, it? Yeah. 18. Yeah, it's like 15 because you got, yeah, it's like 15. All right. Well, I fine. Can I tell you a story? I don't know. I'm sure you, I don't really have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you're going to anyway. <laughs> Surely you do. I mean, if you don't want to hear it, I won't tell you. You probably will. <laughs> no, I, I want to hear your story. I just wanted to tell you about, um, I, I mentioned uh, several times on the show here that I like I like uh, sometimes just sharing some successes over things that have yeah. made a pretty cool difference. Um, this this one <clears throat> this one story that um, was just kind of a fun one, and I think it. Well, you know, we always talk about how we're capable of doing things that other banks or other lenders can't do, and we bring up credit score, debt to income ratio, or whatever. I did a loan a couple years ago for this guy. He called me up and said um, that he and his wife were both on um, permanent disability and that he was recently declined a loan application and said, I go, you know, you can't do that um, due to like the sensitive nature of uh, medical rules and um, disclosure, privacy practices, all that stuff. They can't. You really an underwriter really can't. Now they will, but they can't ask you what your problem is. You know, well, hey, how long have you been off work and when are you going back? That's not usually a question that you can answer um, without somehow disclosing what it is about your condition. If you're on maternity leave or um, in something more severe where you're like wrangling schizophrenia, that would have some kind of an impact to the loan transaction, and therefore it just can't be discussed. So I send in a loan like this and they fire underwriter fires back with some conditions about, you know, what's the nature of this guy's disability and is it going to continue? And I pick up the argument right there of don't even start that talk. 
I will not ask those questions. That's illegal. Um, it's not admissible. This income has been in place for two years. And given the fact that it's permanent, it's going to continue. That's a qualifiable source of income. Fund the loan. So anyway, this was kind of how this started a couple years ago. We we're able to do a loan um, for um, a variety. We've done a loan for a lot of people that are on disability, um, short term and long term. It's something that um, I believe pretty strongly, and I, I like helping those people that ordinarily, you know, a lot of loan officers get the call. Of, you know, can you do a loan for me and my wife? We're both on disability. Say no. Um, people get that, and so I'm happy to be one of the ones that help. We got these guys a home loan. They called um, several months ago and said, um, I am in a bad way and I need some money, need to refinance my house. So we're like, okay, well, what's going on? Said, um, I need some cash out because I'm no longer able to transfer from my wheelchair to my car. Can't, can't do it and now it's having a really big impact, so I need to buy a new car. So um, as my, my first thought is like, man, this is a really good interest rate on this loan. You probably don't want to to scrap that to get what's really going to be short-term debt. But as you could imagine, these guys are on a fixed income, and it's a relatively tight budget. So I said, well, you know, maybe what you could do is get like a line of credit. You know, go to a bank and just get something small, you know, $15,000, $20,000 line of credit and um, that would be better than disturbing your good 30-year fixed. And so they did. And, um, you know, by the way, I bring that up because though we can offer some lines of credit, it's usually piggyback in nature of a first that we're doing too. Some of the other banks are still just better at doing a normal home, home equity line of credit. And doing an equity line is more was more attractive than just doing an auto loan? Well, see, the auto loan amortized only five years for fifteen thousand bucks, made a payment of like three hundred bucks a month, and they couldn't afford that. Um, probably would have figured out how to make it work by making sacrifice and figuring out the budget, but um, that's a big impact to the cash flow of the household. Um, but the bottom line is that the auto financing company, because of debt to income ratio, was unwilling to make a loan. So the home equity line of credit, likewise, same way. Um, we looked at this thing and, you know, one of the other little tricks about it that I know, because I've been in this business a long time and I was an underwriter too, is that non-taxable income is something that can generally be grossed up and not all lenders will do that. And what I mean by that is let's say your, your income's a thousand bucks a month. Um, if you're, if it's non-taxable income, we can gross it up by 125%. Um, because you don't have a tax expense that you're contending with like normal taxable income um, or ordinary taxable income, I should say. Um, the idea it, is that fixed income then, or I'm sorry, non-taxable income then gets put on the same playing field as regular wage income that is taxed. Because we're always qualifying people off of gross pre-tax income. Right. So we know that there's some amount 25 to 30. 25% is some odd ultimately the number. So in, in any case, this one said, I go to the underwriter, you know, let's gross this income up so that these guys can qualify and we can do a cash out refi to get, you know, $15,000 out. And um, 
when I was I was explaining to my borrower that this was my game plan and that I actually believed that I could make it happen. And we'd exhausted these options of finding another way to get the van. I, I've, I'm never a big proponent of making short-term debt, long-term debt. In other words, you don't pay your car off by rolling it into your mortgage. Now your what debt would have been taken care of in five years is now being paid back over 30 years. The interest cost of that over the life of that debt is is double what it would have been if you just bang it out in your short period. So a good financial rule of thumb is don't make short-term debt long-term debt. That's just sound advice for everybody and and really words to live by. So in this case, I um, we, we tried the other options and it came down to it that they really just needed this um, money so that they could buy a van that was handicap equipped. And... Um, so we were right, and and I I well let me say this I I said hey this is gonna work, and they said, um, you know if if anybody could do it it's you, but kind of losing hope from being denied at several other places and feeling like I mean it's such a big impact to their lives. Um, that loan funded this week, and I got really cool feedback of pictures of the um, the van with the ramp in it, and um, for me it was really awesome to um, be able to put a name with a face with a loan um, in something taking advantage of the structure and knowledge of our company to be able to make a loan that others were unwilling or unable to do in a way that has such a positive impact on these guys life Um, that was a really a really great thing for us to be able to you know what I'm saying I I don't want to say that I'm spectacular for having done that. What I'm trying to say is it made me feel really um, lucky to have been able to help in that way. Yeah, there's always a personal side to these transactions. It's not just names on paper. There's a there's a real person. And that's actually one of our new loan officers. We were talking about that the other day. He, he used to do insurance. Uh-huh. And now he's moving into the mortgage world. And he said, man, at the end of a, an insurance transaction, it was just like, look, I, I never, my goal is to never have to use this, never have to call you ever again. <laughs> I want the cheapest insurance possible. And when it's done, it's like, ah, I don't have to deal with that for another year. The mortgage process is a little different because you, you're engaging with these, these families for you know, a month or so, and you know, sometimes sometimes more. pretty intensely for a yeah, month. Yeah, and it's a very emotional transaction, yeah. and you hear some of these stories, reasons why they're getting cash out, reasons why they're buying the home. You know, you're you're hearing these stories, and there's a real personal nature to it, and you develop a relationship a lot of times. Sometimes yeah. not, but you know, sometimes you do. You know, the other ones I've talked about on the on the air here too is reverse mortgages. Um, if there's any single loan program that I can say just totally radically changes people's lives, the reverse mortgage has got to be the deal. Um, there's so many stories that I could tell you guys about people that are showing up with like... Um, I think the one common theme that I get a lot of is those folks that have... Um, an income, you know, and just as a norm of what shows up in my office, there's usually um, the husband has an income or a pension or a something that's going to stop when he dies. And for today, everything is okay, but he has this fear of 
dying and leaving his spouse in a you know a place the goal was always to have no mortgage but now here they are at the you know the golden years and still have a mortgage and there's a fear that if he dies first then she is going to have trouble in the house um the reverse mortgage can totally remove that burden from somebody entirely is to say when one of us dies, the other one is still going to have no mortgage payment, you know, forever. As long as you're living in the house, that's pretty cool. Um, in fact, one of the couples I was counseling recently about a reverse mortgage get, you know, have income of a few thousand bucks a month, but then the mortgage payments, 2000 bucks a month, right? So they're trying to live on a thousand dollars a month and that's hard. That's stressful. Um, and say, well, if you do a reverse mortgage, you no longer have to pay that 2000 bucks a month. So imagine what you could do with it. I said, yeah, but if I get a reverse mortgage, then I'm eating away at the equity in my house and leaving less to my kids. Well, first of all, there's some part of me that wants to say, so what? Don't worry about the kids. Worry about yourself. But more importantly, um, your income isn't going to change. So you're still going to make 3000 bucks a month instead of giving it to the bank. Now you have that $2,000 a month to spend that time with your kids to buy them a plane ticket to come see you if they're out of the area or buy, you know, yourself a plane ticket to go see them. Um, you'd have more, um, stressless, less stressful interactions with everyone because you're not constantly worried about the pennies part of it. And the other thing is, uh, we're all kind of a balance sheet, right? So it's like I get $3,000 a month and I pay my $2,000 mortgage so that I'm building the equity in my house. You do a reverse mortgage, you still get your 3000 bucks a month. You don't give the $2,000 a month. So you're not building the equity in the house. But what if you save that 2000 bucks a month? In the end, does the kid want, you know, $100,000 worth of equity or $100,000 worth of cash? And I'm going to argue that the first of all, forget about the kids. I, it bothers me that too many kids or their retirement plan is just when their parents die. Um, that everybody should just take up the burden of finding their own way into accumulating wealth. But um, yeah. More importantly, that quality of life. If you're if you're um, gonna be able to travel more, or you're gonna be able to you know have guests, or just be able to buy more Christmas presents this year for your family because you don't have that mortgage weighing you down. Um, and there's a lot of other reasons too. People get reverse mortgages because um, health cost is going up and up and up. And if you're on that fixed income. Um, your prescription drugs are doubling and your mortgage or your, uh, medical premiums are doubling. You're just, it's, that's whittling into the money. You don't have the money to go to the matinee anymore. Or you got to stop going out to dinner now, or you can't afford to go on that trip. You know, that you used to always go on with your, your other couple best friends where you went to Vegas to golf every year together. You see people starting to make all these choices that are like, to keep making the mortgage payment, now you're sacrificing a bunch of quality of life. And, um, you know, I'm not saying it's the right fit for everybody, but for the people that are in that spot, 
the reverse mortgage is a pretty powerful life changing deal. And you know, and I for one, I maybe I'd like to think I'm the norm, but if it came on down to it where my parents would sacrifice their quality of life to leave me more money, I would rather them enjoy every last minute that they're alive, preferably with me. Um, let's have some great times together and everything, but don't be canceling everything you enjoy and not able to go out to dinner anymore or to go get a Starbucks or to take your grandkid to a movie because the mortgage is what's got you trapped. Um, reverse mortgage is a really good solution for a lot of people. And, and as a reminder, obviously those are loans that we do. Um, and I want to tell you that those loans aren't for everybody. Um, there's a lot of people that don't need a reverse mortgage. Um, the thing about the reverse mortgage is that the loan balance is growing. What the interest that would have been due on the loan balance, it gets tacked on to the loan balance. So in other words, let's say you're, you owe $150,000 and the interest is $800 a month. The beginning of the next month, you owe $150,800, and it just it accumulates like that over time. You never get chased out of your house. You're never forced to leave because of the loan balance. Um, but yeah, you're instead of paying it, it's just tacking on. So instead of paying cash, you're you're paying an equity. Um, the great thing is, is that there's no income or credit qualifications for getting a reverse mortgage. So people that have had credit issues or don't have verifiable income, um, it's a, it, one of the options available uh, there. Reverse mortgages are so misunderstood, but you want to know where the loan starts. So this is super cool. The loan starts before you can do anything, before you can sign the loan app, before you can um, pay for an appraisal or do anything. You guys, the reverse mortgage borrowers, have to go um, to a counseling session with a HUD-approved counselor. It can be done over the phone or in person, but they uh, they make sure that you understand fully what you're getting yourself into, absent of any salesmanship or any spectacular hiding of numbers or whatever. They tell you truly what the costs are, where the uh, you know when you may or may not have to leave the house, all that kind of thing. It's really clear, so you understand the clear rules of engagement before you get yourself up into a, a loan deal. Um, so anyway. I I do really enjoy helping people with reverse mortgages too. If you guys have any loan needs or um, fears or concerns or goals, if there is something you'd like to talk about that you think that we could help with, I'd love to hear from you. I, I really enjoy that part of my job. Um, you can call one phone number rings all of our offices. It's 543-LOAN. So that's 543-5626. Uh, we also have stuff on the on our website about the different loan programs and including reverse mortgages. So if you're interested, you can go to centralcoastlending.com and and look at what we offer there for you. Um, it's it's something where it's just it's nice to be able to help, and we thank you for that opportunity. Uh, hey, we got another live show next week. I understand it's going to be Dan and Jason Van Dyke next week because I'm going out with the family. But, uh, yeah, tune in next week for another episode of Mortgage Matters. Appreciate you being here. <laughs>